Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gunnar Hauser, and this is another episode of Ancient Weirdness. We're going to look at a couple of interesting topics today. Most of today's episode will be devoted to the practice of making skull cups or skull goblets. And then we're going to be looking at a book of dream interpretation that has survived from antiquity. Now, skull goblets, to be sure, are a pretty morbid concept. This is where the skull of somebody, in many cases a defeated enemy, was converted into a drinking cup by the person who took their life. And the roots of this practice seem to go all the way back to the Stone Age in one form or another. They've actually found examples in England to go back to something like 12,000 BC. In some cases, there are religious beliefs that seem to be connected to these ideas too. We have evidence of an actual sort of cult of heads in a number of different ancient cultures all around the world. And there is a modern continuation of this in Tibet, the Tantric Buddhists still in some cases use kapalas that have a kind of religious power to them. This isn't the result of violence, though. These are skulls of people who had passed away and are taken from things like cemeteries, charnel houses, and so on, and converted into these religious artifacts. We're focusing more on what you could think of as battle trophies. And the practice seems to have some kind of a Central Asian origin in terms of how it shows up in written records. For example, in Chinese history, we have a few examples of it. And probably the most famous one, the rulers of a tribe called the Xiongnu, who were nomads. The Chinese imperial dynasties had to deal with this confederation of tribes off and on. A ruler of the Xiongnu had actually defeated and killed a king of another nomadic tribe and had taken the top of his skull and converted it into a goblet. And about a century or so later, it was actually used to help seal a deal, a treaty, with one of the emperors of the Han Dynasty of China. And the ruler of the Xiongnu actually drank blood from the skull. It's not stated whether this is animal blood, human blood, or whatever, but he drank blood from the skull and then passed this cup to the ambassadors from the Han, and they drank from it as well. Again, it's not recorded whether they were happy about having to do that. Now, moving over to ancient Western history, the Greek historian Herodotus talks about a tribe called the Scythians. The Scythians lived in areas of what are now southern Russia, the Ukraine, in a general sense north of the Black Sea, and he devotes an entire section of his history to their customs. And they did this. When they killed enemies, they would convert their skulls into goblets. He says that if you were a poor man and you killed an enemy, you would take the top of the skull, line it with leather. Rich Scythians would actually line it with gold. And when they had a dinner party, had people over, they would actually take these skull goblets and tell stories about the original owners of the skulls and what they did to them, how they defeated them in battle, you know, brag a little bit and then pass the skull around for everybody to drink from. We have a story from Roman history from the time of the Roman Republic, something that happened in the year 215 BC. A Roman army led by Commander Lucius Postumius Albinus was defeated in northeastern Italy near a town called Ariminum. Today, that's Rimini. The Roman force was defeated by a Celtic or Gallic tribe called the Boii, and they were allies of Hannibal. This is during the Second Punic War. And Hannibal, the Carthaginian general, had invaded Italy, had already won some major victories against the Romans at places like Lake Trasimene and Cannae. He had enlisted the boy as allies. The Roman force under Albinus was ambushed, wiped out something like 25,000 Roman casualties are recorded. Albinus, the commander, was killed. 
The leader of the Boyi had the top of his skull removed, covered with gold, and they used it for rituals in one of their temples. Now, we're moving into that time that's sort of between ancient history and medieval history. There was a tribe called the Lombards that invaded Italy. So this is the period of late antiquity. This is after the fall of the western half of the Roman Empire. The king of the Lombards at this time was named Alboin. This is in the 6th century AD. Alboin, the king of the Lombards, defeated another tribe called the Gepids. The Gepids at the time were led by a king named Cunimond. Cunimond was killed in the battle, and the main historian of the Lombards, who's known as Paul the Deacon, records that Alboin had Cunimond turned into a skull goblet to commemorate him. But Alboin also ended up marrying Cunimond's daughter, whose name was Rosamund. And in that way, the Gepids were brought under the rule of the Lombards. It's bad enough to think of Rosamund's point of view here, that she was forced into a marriage with the man who actually killed her father and did this to her father's body. But a number of years later, it got worse. A banquet was being held in the Italian town of Verona, and Alboan was getting rather intoxicated during the party, and he ordered that the skull cup of Cunamon be brought to him so that everyone could drink toasts from it. And Rosamund either happened to walk into the dining room or was ordered in, and Alboan told her that she should come and join them and actually drink to her father's health from her father's skull. That was pretty much it for Rosamund. She resolved then and there that she was going to take this guy down. And she made a plot with a man named Helmechus, King Alboin's armor bearer. Alboin liked to take afternoon naps. So they planned the assassination for a given afternoon. Alboin went to sleep. Rosamund tied his sword into its scabbard so that he could not draw the sword. She led Helmechus into the bedroom. Alboin, who was apparently a suspicious guy, always on his guard, did wake up, see what was going on, tried to draw his sword and defend himself, but was unable to remove it. And although he put up a good fight, he was killed. This caused a great uproar among the Lombards, and Rosamund and Helmechus then fled down to another Italian town called Ravenna. Ravenna was in the hands of the Byzantines, the Eastern Romans. When they got there, Rosamund began to talk to the local governor and began to get the idea that maybe she should marry him instead of Helmechus. Helmechus was expecting that he was going to get to marry Rosamund and at some point become leader of the Lombards himself. So now Rosamund begins to plot against Helmechus. And one day she handed him a cup of wine that she had slipped poison into. And he did drink from it, but whether he already suspected her or not, or whether he possibly tasted the presence of the poison, he realized what happened. He drew his weapon and forced Rosamund to drink from the cup also. Now, moving a few centuries later, we're in the early 800s AD, 9th century. I'd mentioned the Byzantine Empire. This was the surviving eastern half of the old Roman Empire. It went on for a very long time after the so-called fall of the Roman Empire in the West. There were long-running wars between the Byzantines and a tribe called the Bulgars, who, of course, the modern Eastern European nation of Bulgaria is named after. Byzantine emperors fought wars with the Khans, as they were called, of the Bulgars. And there was a very famous event where a Byzantine emperor named Nikephorus I had been able to attack and loot and burn and pillage the Bulgar capital of Pliska. Nikephorus and the Byzantine army were marching back to Constantinople, laden down with all of their plunder from the Bulgars' capital. And the Khan, in this case, was named Krum. 
and who had been fighting another enemy some distance away from the capital, maneuvered him into an ambush. Nikephorus was killed along with many of the Byzantine soldiers. Crum had the top of Nikephorus's skull converted into a goblet that was lined with silver. This was seen by the pagan Bulgars as a way of showing respect and honor to a defeated enemy. I'm not so sure Nikephorus appreciated the gesture at the time. Wars went on for a long time after this, and there's another famous story. It's not related to skull cups, but the Emperor Basil II, who was known as Bulgaroktonos in Greek, or Bulgar Slayer, defeated the Bulgars at the Battle of Cladion in 1014, took a large number of prisoners, 15,000 prisoners, according to the chroniclers, decided to do an extremely cruel punishment on the prisoners. He released them and sent them back to the Bulgar homeland, However, the prisoners were divided into groups of 100, and 99 of the 100 men were blinded, leaving one out of 100 with his sight to each lead 99 blind men home. Legend has it that it was the sight that caused the Bulgar Khan at this moment, known as Samuel, to fall dead of a heart attack. And a number of years later, the first Bulgarian empire, as it has come to be known, was conquered by the Byzantines. Now, the Byzantines went through a phase where they were actually ruled by Western Europeans. This happened after the Fourth Crusade. In the year 1204, an army of Western European knights, who were supposed to be going to the Middle East to carry on a crusade against Muslims there, ended up becoming completely sidetracked. The North Italian city of Venice, which had a fleet at the time, ended up using the crusaders of the Fourth Crusade for their own purposes. The Venetians were really angry at the Byzantines because for a long time they had had a trade deal with them. The Byzantines had changed the deal. They had altered the terms of it and instead had begun to favor another North Italian town called Genoa. Now the Genoans were major rivals of the Venetians. So the man who was the chief executive officer of Venice known as the Doge of Venice, Enrico Dandolo, and other men in the Venetian leadership hatched a scheme to make use of the Fourth Crusade. When the Fourth Crusade was proclaimed by Pope Innocent III, they said, come to Venice, we have ships, we'll take you down to the Middle East. You won't have to march all the way there, as many previous crusaders had done. But as soon as they set sail, the Venetian ship captains told the crusader leaders, oh, by the way, you do have to pay us to take you down there. We're not going to do it for free. They said, well, we don't have any money. We haven't fought anyone yet. We haven't conquered any towns. We haven't taken any plunder or loot. So Venetian said, oh, you know, there is a town just down the coast here called Zara. You could attack that, then give us a down payment for the voyage. Yeah, just one problem. Zara was a Christian city on the coast of what is now Croatia, and it was another trading rival of Venice. It was actually technically under the control of the Hungarians at this time, and there was a great rivalry there. So the Crusaders took the suggestion, and they captured Zara. Pope Innocent III was so furious at them when he found out that they had attacked a Christian city that he put a sentence of excommunication on every man who was part of the Fourth Crusade. This meant that they were outlaws and that when they died, they weren't going to go to heaven. The Crusaders seemed to think, well, we can get back in the Pope's good graces if we just keep at this. They ended up taking a detour to Constantinople to support a member of the Byzantine imperial family who had lost his bid for the throne there. And they did this because this guy promised them lots of money if they helped him gain control in Constantinople. 
So they did. They were able to help in his revolution, put him on the throne. But he didn't come up with the money that he promised quickly enough. So they assassinated him. And when the people of Constantinople rose in rebellion against that, the Crusaders took over the city. And they established what we call the Latin Empire of Constantinople. Pope Innocent III, when he got the news of that, thought, oh, these crusaders aren't that bad, because that had been a goal of Christians of Western Europe for a long time, ever since the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church had parted ways. So he forgave the crusaders, and the crusaders said, should we go to the Middle East? Should we go to the Holy Land? And they said, no, we'll just stay here. So this was in 1204. From 1204 to 1261, Western Europeans ruled Constantinople as a crusader state. So the Fourth Crusade never got close to the Middle East, never did violence to a single Muslim person, only other Christians. So anyway, we've taken quite a detour ourselves here from our topic of skull goblets. When they established the Latin Empire of Constantinople, a nobleman named Baldwin was named as the first emperor of the Latin Empire. Now, the Bulgars were still around. As a matter of fact, they were moving into a second phase of their history where they were building an empire. Baldwin didn't have too long to enjoy his time as the first ruler of the Latin Empire, because the Khan of the Bulgars at this time, named Koloyan, defeated him at a battle near a town called Adrianople. This was a very strategic location that had already seen some battles in ancient history before this. Now, Baldwin was not killed right away. He was kept as a prisoner. Koloyan got very angry at him because Baldwin had tried to seduce Koloyan's wife. Tried to seduce her while in captivity, that is. Probably not the smartest choice for Baldwin to make. And so this nobleman from Flanders in Western Europe was converted into a skull goblin in Cloyne's collection. And now for our last segment today, we're going to do a complete 180 turn into talking about dreams. Dreams of people in ancient Greek and Roman times, and specifically how dreams related to medicine and the treatment of illness. The ancient Greeks believed in a god of healing. He was known as Asclepius, and he was believed to have been a son of Apollo and a mortal woman. There are some scholars that have linked him to some of the ideas that developed about an Egyptian official named Imhotep, who much later in ancient Egyptian history than his own lifetime was reimagined as a god and as a healer. Asclepius is said to have been able to raise the dead. He was raising so many people from the dead that Zeus's brother Hades, the god of the underworld, began to complain that his people were being taken from him, and soon the earth would be overcrowded. So Zeus killed Asclepius with a thunderbolt. Then he felt remorse for this act and resurrected Asclepius. Now, there were a number of shrines of Asclepius in different parts of the eastern Mediterranean. There was one on the Greek mainland at a place called Epidaurus. There was also one on the island of Kos later one in a town called Pergamum on the coast of Turkey. We also know of shrines that were built in Athens and Rome. The priests of Asclepius were called Therapeutai. Obviously, therapeutics comes from this. And sick people would come to the temple, and they would sleep overnight in the temple. This was called incubation. There are stories that snakes actually slithered around the beds where the sick people lay, because snakes were connected to Asclepius and to Apollo as well. And because snakes would shed their skin, they were connected to the idea of healing and rebirth. Asclepius supposedly learned the secrets of healing and resurrection because a snake licked his ear. These are extremely popular shrines. We actually have these pillars, inscribed pillars or stele, that tell stories of healing, stories of the patients who came there. It gives the name of the patient, what their sickness, their malady was, and the remedy that they got. 
because the belief was as you incubated overnight in the temple, you would dream and Asclepius would appear in the dream and tell you what you needed to do to get better. He would give you step-by-step instructions, or he would do something in the dream and the person sometimes would wake up completely healed. Patients who recovered from their illness were expected to then give a donation to the temple, and the donations were also recorded on these stele. Now, the stele are really interesting because they do describe some people who were doubters, but they were healed anyway. There's one story of a woman who came into Apodaris, and she was blind in one eye. Her name is given as Ambrosia. And she started to read the accounts of the healings on these stele, and she started to laugh out loud, and she started to mock the therapeutic priest. But she agreed to incubate. She had a dream where Sclepius appeared cut open her eye, and poured medicine into her eye. When she woke the next morning, she could see out of the bad eye. In the dream, Asclepius had said, because you've doubted me, once I do heal you, you should dedicate a small silver pig in the temple. And this is what Ambrosia did. No reason given why it had to be a silver pig, by the way. There are accounts on the stele of healed people who did not pay the donation. They did not follow through on that promise, and so the affliction returned to them. There's also a very intriguing story of a man named Iskines who climbed over the wall because he wanted to peek in on the people sleeping, and he was blinded. But when he incubated in the temple, he was healed of that blindness. There's a story of a man who had carried a spear point in his jaw for six years. He had been in some kind of a battle. He walked out carrying the spear point in his hand. And there's also a very, very intriguing account of a man who had gotten very sick, and what had happened was his stepmother had slipped leeches into his drink. In the dream that he had in the temple, Asclepius cut open his chest and pulled out the leeches. He walked out the front door carrying these leeches. It's hard to interpret these stele in terms of their historical truth. A lot of people have seen them as simply propaganda done by the priests and a way to collect money for the temple. But these were extremely popular for many hundreds of years. All the way into the time of the Roman Empire, people were doing this activity. So there had to have been something that people took seriously about it. At the same time, there were people who were actual physicians who were trained in the tradition of Hippocrates and also the Roman doctor Galen many hundreds of years later. This was not medical care according to how most doctors today would accept it because they believed that the body had four fluids in it, four humors that had to be kept in balance. Blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. And so treatment was designed to bring the humors back into balance and restore health. So if you had a fever, the idea, according to humoral theory, was that you had too much blood in you. And so they would bleed the person out. Now, there were a lot of people in ancient times who also thought that dreams could foretell the future. It wasn't just something connected to healing. And we do have a book of dream interpretation that has survived, read by an author named Artemidorus. According to his own account, he traveled throughout Greece, Italy, the Eastern Mediterranean, collecting stories of dreams. And his book of dream interpretation was meant as an instruction manual. Most people in ancient Greek times thought that dreams were sent by the gods. This is actually not what Artemidorus states in his book. He says that dreams are important, but they come from inside the mind of the person having the dream. They can predict the future. Kind of in the middle ground between your average person on the street and some of the philosophers like Aristotle or later Cicero in Roman times, who were extremely skeptical about dreams, thought that they were just coincidences and didn't really tell you anything about waking life. Artemidorus thought it was very important to know the backstory of the dreamer, because numbers and various occurrences in the dream, the tiniest details could be very important in interpreting what the dream is supposed to be telling the person. The dreams focus on people of certain professions, like fishermen, athletes, and gladiators, and also slaves quite often appear. Sigmund Freud was very interested in Artemidorus' book because of his ideas of the subconscious and also of sexuality. And there is a whole section in Artemidorus' book about sex dreams and what they're supposed to mean. And without getting too detailed about it, he thought that certain sexual acts were bad. 
Another example is that if you dreamt of having sex with one of the gods or goddesses, it meant you were going to die soon. A man dreamt that he had a penis made of iron. He had a son, but then the son ended up murdering him. Artemidorus's interpretation of this is that iron is destroyed by the rust that it makes itself. There's a dream that a man had three sons and that he dreamt he was chopped in pieces and eaten by two of them, but that the youngest of his three sons came in and told them that they should not do it, that he angrily screamed at them to stop. There's no way I will eat my father. What eventually happened is that this youngest son died before the father did, so he did not inherit any of the property. And that's how Artemidorus interpreted the dream. He mentions two dreams of wrestlers. These are wrestlers who engaged in the Pancration, which was an incredibly violent version of wrestling, where you were allowed to do lots of different things to your opponent, and quite often people died during these bouts. A wrestler dreamt he had actually given birth to a baby and was breastfeeding it. He ended up losing at the games. Artemidorus says that the dream shows that he had taken on a woman's role. There's a story of a dream that a gladiator dreamt that he was lifted up and carried around in a coffin full of human blood, and that he drank the blood. He dreamt that his mother appeared in the dream and said that you have brought dishonor on me. The interpretation that Artemidorus gives is that the blood that was in the coffin in his dream was the blood that he spilled during these gladiatorial fights. And probably the strangest one, a man dreamt that he was feeding bread and cheese to his own penis. And the story is he died a criminal's death, which it's not stated directly, but most likely he was beheaded because the interpretation is he was giving his penis the food that was meant for his mouth. And that means he's soon not going to have a mouth anymore. And on that note, I'll sign off for today. The music credits for today are Magical Gravitation from RoyaltyFreeMusic.com and Phantom from Space by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons. I hope you return for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.